Hey everyone, welcome to The Dark Cast. I'm your host, Jonathan Miley. The Dark Cast is a bi-weekly discussion celebrating and critiquing video games. The show is divided into multiple conversations between myself and the various writers here on DarkStation.com. I hope you find this episode to be a nice distraction from our crazy world, and I hope this episode finds you safe and well. We're continuing to talk about some of our favorite games from the past 10 years, so be warned, there will be spoilers for all of the games that we talk about in this episode. In section one, I talk with Brian Tyler about Batman the Telltale series and its second season, Enemy Within. In section two, I talk with Lauren Clark about Dark Souls 2. And in section three, I talk to Garland Pan about Hotline Miami and a little bit about Hotline Miami 2. You can find exact timestamps for each section as well as more information about the things we discuss below in the description on YouTube or in the show notes for this episode, which you can find on darkstation.com. There you can also find the Darkcast interviews podcast as well as other video game reviews, previews, and features. Be sure to subscribe to the show on iTunes, follow us on Twitter at darkstation underscore com, find us on Facebook, check us out on YouTube, and email us at podcast at darkstation.com. As always, thank you so much for listening. Now on with the show. And uh, we are back to talk about more video game stuff. Uh, we are doing our 2020 Games of the Decade discussion. And uh, we are trucking along with this going throughout the whole year. Uh, this is not a... Uh, we're not doing lists. We're not ranking things. We're just talking about some of our all-time favorite games between 2010 and 2019. And so in this section, I've got Brian Tyler with me. How you doing, Brian? You know, I think we're we're here to talk about the same games. Yes. <laughs> um, yes. Uh, so far, I think you've signed up for mostly all the games, or not all the games, but all the games that I wanted to talk about and you wanted to talk about have been the same games. Yes. Uh, so, which is which is good. Uh, which means this is uh, all of the other ones have been like thirty, thirty-five minutes. In length uh, for a segment, this one may go longer. Who knows? Because we're also talking about two seasons of a thing. Yes. Because uh, right now we're going to talk about the Batman Telltale series, uh, which it's a good game, you know? It's like just, I mean, we could also just make this really short and just be like, Batman's good. Go go play it. I mean, that, that that's yeah. essentially... <laughs> what we're going to be saying. There's probably going to be more yes. words in there somewhere, but yeah, it's going to come down to, yeah, it's good. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, you reviewed it the first and second season when they first came out, right? Yes. Okay. Um, did you have a bunch of technical problems when you, uh, first started playing the game and what platform did you play it on? Uh, I played it on the PC okay. and no, I had mine ran fairly good throughout. Um, I, I remember specifically the first season being pretty choppy. Yeah. Um, as far as frame rate and stuff goes. Mm-hmm. Um, but that that was 
that was kind of the um the the telltale, the telltale jank as it was. Yeah. yeah. I think I also had a save issue with like the mm. first two episodes of the first season where I played Oops. through both of those and then when I went to play the third one it wasn't there. Um oh. so I kinda just had to like go go off of what I could. Um but I think after that it was fine. Gotcha. Um yeah, that that telltale uh jank has Oh man, it's it can be rough sometimes. Yes. And it, I feel like it's a testament to these games that they're still worth playing even with the th- some of the problems that they have. So I have I I didn't play the game when it first came out. I tried to. Um but for whatever reason on my computer there were huge issues with this game. Uh where literally on just the the camera panning across the screen, uh it would be at like 60 fps. And then it would drop down to like 10 for a few seconds. Like nothing's happening. It just plummets and then it pops back up. Um, and then anytime there was like a scene change uh, between, you know, like two locations or two chapters or something like that, uh, a lot of times there would be like a good five second pause Um where it just like you think the game froze, <laughs> uh, and and then it would continue. And I've got it installed on like an SSD, and like that these things shouldn't be a problem. Um, the, one of the weird things was is if say you played through a section of the game and then you stopped it and went to the main menu and then played it again, it would actually play like completely smoothly. Really? But if you close the game out completely and did it again, then the the problems... Yeah, it was so weird. Um, And then when it first came out on PC, it had a performance option and a uh, quality option, and those were the only options for graphics. (laughs) And they made absolutely no difference. Um, But around the time that um, the second season came out, The Enemy Within... Uh, they did. They did a huge update to the game because one, it runs better, uh, and two, there are actually real options for for graphics. It, and it's really nice. frustrating okay. because there are no patch notes for this game. So I don't know when all of these things rolled out or what exactly they all changed. But they did something. Uh, but they did stuff. Yeah, and um, yeah. So I. I was able to to finally play it uh, around the time that the second one came out, and really enjoyed it. Uh, so I I have done a bizarre thing, a thing that I've never done with Telltale games. I usually like am one and done, um, and have fond memories of it because it's it's a great experience. But I think one of the the, the magic things about Telltale, and I think one of the things that uh, people get frustrated with, or they uh, they they dislike or whatever, is the fact that when you replay a Telltale game, you realize that a lot of your choices are smoke and mirrors. Um, But on a single playthrough, like, it works, and you believe that you impacted the story. And I kind of think that's the best way to play most Telltale games, is to to have that effect that you're having. Oh, yeah. um, That, you know, influence on the story. Uh, because when you realize you don't, it it kind of breaks some things. Uh, but Batman is actually one of the ones, and it, it's really frustrating with just the way Telltale has has gone. Listening to, um, I think No Clip did a, a documentary on it, 
and hearing about some of the things that the studio uh, wanted to do, but the kind of higher-ups... Basically, when, when The Walking Dead was a huge success, they were like, we want more of this exact thing. And people, including myself and you, and I think literally everybody, including the people making the games, got very tired of that and did not yeah. want just more The Walking Dead uh, in other scenarios and stories. Uh, and so they had a lot of ideas for what they wanted to do when they wanted to branch out and do crazier things. Uh, and you can sort of start to see that with, with Batman and even oddly enough, like the guardians of the galaxy game, uh, because there's, oh, yeah. there's like a handful of characters that can live and die throughout that. And it changes. Um, I think there's either five or six episodes in that one. And I think the last two episodes can be wildly different depending on who your party members are. Yep. Um, with Batman, one of the things that I really appreciate about it is that it feels like somebody came to this and said, I have my own take on Batman and this is what it is. And it, it feels good. It feels authentic. It all, it still feels unique though. Um, like it's, it's kind of blurring the lines between a whole bunch of different stuff. Like it, it's got an air of the Batman, the animated series. And I think that's why they did the title the way they did Batman, the telltale series. Cause even the font is like reminiscent Very similar, of, yeah. um, of the animated series and the music. Uh, they're like every, like now and then there'll be moments where it's like, this feels like it's driving towards the animated series and then it'll do something else. Uh, which I appreciate because it's you know the greatest cartoon uh, ever. <laughs> except for maybe the Animaniacs. Yeah. Uh, I'm okay with those being tied as the greatest cartoons. <laughs> <laughs> but um, <clears throat> we'll talk about the, some of the cool stuff that it does because a lot of that actually happens in, in season two. Um, but, but I think the game actually holds up pretty well uh, for multiple playthroughs because in a lot of ways, it, the game is almost like The Witcher in some ways. Okay. Um, whereas a lot of, a lot of Telltale games, at least one character doesn't have a huge personality. Uh, they don't have a big presence because they're your viewpoint into the world. And that's, that's that, uh, which makes sense. I mean, you, you play a lot of RPGs and, you know, your character is kind of a blank slate. Um, but with The Witcher, one of the things that I've always liked the way that they do things is like Geralt has a very defined character and when you look at dialogue options, like they're all things that he could say. It's just like what side of the personality do you want to lean into? Um, and I feel like that's what they did with Bruce Wayne and Batman. Like any given decision, you could kind you could pretty much see Batman making. Um, and if you do a lot of them in one way or the other in succession, then you can kind of create a Batman who's a huge jerk or a <laughs> act, you know, relatively emotionally stable human being. Um, but it, it still feels still feels like Bruce Wayne and Batman, uh, which is, is something that, I guess because it's just a pre-existing character, is not something that you get to see a lot in um, the other Telltale games yeah, or yeah, other games game. like this where you're controlling... Uh, character and you know it's it's mostly just story happening. And I think by by having one of by having like like kind of the solid background as far as hey like you have an emotional range that you can swing through with Bruce mm -hmm. um, and with Batman rather than just having like 
you know, this is that person's kind of like stock answer mm-hmm. um, is that it it lets you it, it doesn't have as many um, wild swings um, right. with the dialogue that um, I know that the, you know like things like uh, I, Guardians of the Galaxy had that a little bit um, because there were just there there were kind of weird different things that happened. I, I that was probably my my least favorite of all of the after Walking Dead stuff. Sure, that popped up um, just because it was it it seemed very like plotty in plot inconsistent. Yes. Just because it it kept trying to get back to um, this um, kind of homeostasis, um, mm-hmm. and the cool part about them pulling like their you know like this version of Batman into its own world is that you have you have an understanding of of, of who Bruce and who Batman is, um, but then you get to react to all of these things that are happening as they're going down, mm-hmm. um, and I think that allowed them to stay a lot. Um, to have a lot more freedom with the story because it was you had it unlike you know, like Telltale wise the best thing I could say the not the best thing I could say but the, the the closest proximity to like this is gonna be probably the final Walking Dead game um, mm. the uh, the final season uh, because at that point your character is Clementine and you've been right. through at that point, three games of shaping her character that you can have all of this stuff happen and because you have a core character that you're working with, that gives you a grounding, uh, a way into it. And it's the same thing with the Batman is that they can take some real wild swings with what's going on with the story and kind of take him out of the realm that everybody is so... Um, like uh, attached to because of the stuff that's happened in the comics or stuff that's happened in the series, the animated series, or even stuff that's happened in the movies that they could just pull away and go, no, 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 this is ours. Mm-hmm. And you can experience this through him because you have just a grounded character that you're like, okay, no, this is the stuff he does. How is he going to react to this other stuff? Right. Uh, yeah, I, I think they do uh, a great job with all of that. Yeah. Um, I think... As far as some plot things go, there are versions of the game that I think simply work better. Um, so so now that I've played it multiple times, I've pretty much seen all, see all the permutations. Because the first time I played it, I tried to just make like a gut reaction of like, this is what Batman would do. And a lot of those decisions were like very self-destructive because <laughs> Batman... Um, well, you know, I mean, he's a guy who never got over the the death of his parents yeah. and he dresses up as a bat uh to scare criminals uh so there's some self-destructive tendencies there yes um but uh i feel like it worked for the most part but uh it was really it was my second playthrough that i kind of enjoyed the most uh because i started out as like okay i want this to be like bruce wayne the white knight like this is bruce wayne the good guy He's going to be relative. I want him to be like as emotionally healthy as a guy who dresses up as a bat could be. Uh, so it's like he's not going to be friends with with John and he's he's not going to be friends with Selena Kyle. And like he's going to double down on his relationship with Two-Face um, or Harvey Dent. And um, 
so like there there are moments where so like in I think it's the third episode, uh maybe it's the second episode. Uh-huh. Uh I think it's the second episode. You can um you can save either Catwoman or Harvey Dent yes. uh at a at a rally. And that would that would that this is like that that schism point where I think if you don't save him, he, he his face gets ruined. Yes. So so basically the the everything slows down and uh, Catwoman is on the ground. She's been tripped up or shot and like hurt her shoulder or something like that. And so there are some goons coming towards her and Harvey Dent, who is you know at this point he's just a politician, like he's a giant man in the game, but he's not he's not a fighter, he's not a criminal, he's just a dude laying on the ground, and the penguin who I really like their version of the penguin who you know he grew up with uh Bruce Wayne when they were kids, and also just elephant in the room uh I'll say spoilers at the beginning of the show before this actually goes live because <laughs> obviously we're talking about all the story here, yes um. But uh, the, one of the great things about this is that instead of Martha and Thomas Wayne being these glowing examples of human beings, they were actually part of the mafia of, yeah. of Gotham. And, um, you know, Bruce Wayne's legacy kind of being tainted in that. Like, I, I really, like, I feel like that's brilliant. And I kind of want that to be all versions of, like, Thomas Wayne needs to be dirty. Yeah. Like, I, th- I thought it was really, <laughs> and not only that, like I, I really enjoyed that. So that was, I want to say that happened. At the that kind of revelation came out at the end of episode one, right? Well, it's it's hinted at at the end of just the the intro because yes. you meet with Falcone and he's talking about how he and his, he and your dad were chums, and you're just like, you're, like shut what? up, man. No, uh, you can kick him out or you can be a little chummy with him, uh, but yeah, it's at the end that you find out for certain, like. No, this is this is what happened. Yeah, and and I really what what I really like about that is that, um, and the way that they handle it is that it gives, um, it gives you time to kind of deal with this this fact that you know that that Bruce has based his whole, um, his whole career as Batman on on that moment and fighting get, uh, back against that moment because you know his parents were good people, and then right. to find out that they weren't they weren't really good people they you know they like they were getting by and but they were also using a lot of people and doing all yeah. that, that kind of mafia stuff and that ha- that he has a real crisis point as to why am I even doing this then? And yeah. then it becomes, it, it becomes a lot less like his crusade to make up for the death of his parents to his crusade because it's like, no, I'm not going to let all this stand. Right. Like even, if, even if it was them, if I was chasing this down today because they were alive and it was them, I'd still go after this because this is the right thing to do. Right. It's it's to uh, repair the damage that his, his parents did rather than to avenge their their yeah, death to to make some to um, to make something good come from the Wayne yeah. game. Um. So so all that uh, Oswald and him grew up, and then Oswald left, and he's become a criminal across the pond, known as the Penguin, and he wears a, a penguin mask. Uh, but so he's walking towards Harvey Dent, uh, back to this whole situation, and he's got like this one of those giant can lights that you know you can feel the heat from from like a hundred feet away. Uh, so <clears throat> he's gonna basically smash his head in with that. And when I first played the game, it's like you know I don't know deep down I always want Catwoman and Batman to get together, so yes. I saved Catwoman. Um, and 
like in that moment, I feel like that is a dumb decision to make because you barely know Catwoman in this version of the story. Um, you know, you've had a you fought with her a little bit, uh, both as Batman and then you fought alongside her. Um, and but in the situation, like Catwoman is a very capable person, and sure she is lying on the ground right now, but I there's really no doubt that she couldn't fight off the goons like it makes more sense like just logically of like who's gonna survive these two situations it makes more sense to uh save harvey um but in the grand story of the game the the turn that harvey makes if you don't save him with the burning of the face because uh, he's also been injected with a toxin that uh, basically removes your base inhibition or uh, it allows your base desires uh, to come forth by removing your inhibitions. Um, like, like grand story wise, it makes a lot more sense for you not to save Harvey. Like yes. that is, it works better as I feel like if, there, if there a was villain. a if there was a canon decision, that right. would be it. Yes, um, but it's it's just one of those kind of things that like if you look at the two decisions objectively, it makes more sense to save Harvey. But if you look at it from a story perspective of how things will roll out, it makes more sense not to save him. Uh, and there are a few things, there are a few things like that uh, throughout the story. Um, but uh, the one of the things, and so going back to the these games kind of growing from what The Walking Dead was at the end of the fourth episode, um, and I, I jumped over part of the fourth episode because we'll get to to a certain character in just a moment yes um but at the end of the fourth episode uh you find out that the penguin has invaded uh wayne tower and he's controlling your tech and two-face is gone to uh the mansion and he's he's going to kill attack yeah um and so the beginning, the end of episode four and the beginning of episode five change very drastically depending on where you go. Because basically, if you take care of one at the end of four, then you have to deal with it a couple of weeks later at uh, the beginning of episode five. Um, and it's 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 weird because at the end of the that episode you know it always tells you like your decisions and everything and where you rank with other stuff and it'll give you a synopsis of like the decision and in my mind it's always been like i'm going to the mansion not to save the mansion screw the mansion i'm going to save alfred Absolutely. like every yeah. like every decision that i make is in in an attempt for alfred's best interest yeah and not only that like um uh, like I thought their their relationship was really good, but at the same time, yes. like I don't think there is like that. That to me stood out as one of the weird, um, like choices because right. I don't think there's a scenario in which almost any Batman that I've read about in the you know like the the past like almost forty years I've been alive. I don't think any Batman would choose tech over life. No matter who it is, yes. Like if it was, if it was, I have to go save my. If I, if it was like I have to go save my tech, or I have to go save random person number three on, you know, like on a subway train. That that dude, you know, Batman is going to go save that person 
Because no matter what tech he has, he is still going to be Batman, and he knows that inside. Like you know, like none of that stuff is what makes Batman. It's Bruce that makes Batman, and right. Bruce is about. It, it has always been about making sure, like that that human life has to come first, and mm-hmm. it's always it, like that's always the point where he loses. Like in all the stories, like the you know, like the Dark Knight Returns or other things, it's at that point where he loses that hold. Of that 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 life is precious that you can't you know that you can't take it like that or you can't let it go you can't stop fighting for it that he's always gone dark yes um, so yeah I don't think that like that to well, me so, is never that was like the easiest decision to make in this game because oh, like, yeah, no absolutely. I'm going to go save Alfred I don't care what he does to my tech but but it's it's interesting because you can see I think where they were trying to make the dilemma um because at the end, basically, if you choose to go fight Penguin, uh, Bruce just tells Alfred to hold up in the Batcave. And so Alfred doesn't even fight Two-Face. He just hides, and he's perfectly safe, which, I mean, that's a smart thing to do. Um, but the text of it reads that, like, basically, did you um, did you go to the house? Like, not did you go save Alfred, but, like, specifically it's talking about the house or the tower. Um, and so I, I think... I don't know. I, I guess when they were writing it, they were thinking more material. Uh, I, I don't know if they were thinking about so much the relationship yeah. with Alfred, uh, which is, you know, again, one of the, the, the faults there. And we're probably going to talk about some of the issues more than uh, some of the good things, just because, like, so much of it is good yeah. that the, the issues kind of stand out. Um, so... And speaking of issues, like the uh, even even today, some of the the frame rate issues are still there. And there's actually there's weird issues on every version that I've played. So I picked it up on Xbox, and I picked it up on PS4 because you can you'll find them like both seasons on sale for like seven dollars at various times. Like it's ridiculously cheap. Um, it went off the store for a little bit, uh, but now it's back. You can you can buy it wherever. Um, but uh so like in the at the beginning of episode two where you go back to crime alley on the xbox when you're seeing the like the memories of what happened that night uh most of that stuff just doesn't appear like bruce wayne is just standing there with like a a blue tent because that i guess represents the past or whatever and like the the graphics that are supposed to be there the character models that are supposed to be there just aren't um and then on the the playstation 4 one of the things that i've noticed is every time uh james gordon is smoking a cigar uh there's something wrong with like the particle effects or whatever they use for the smoke from the cigar and you literally just see these white blocks like floating up from (laughs) from the cigar (laughs) instead of like clouds it's just completely opaque white blocks um and also on the PS4, I've seen some people where their hair is completely missing, so they look like this weird robot thing that's missing the back of its head. Oh no! Um, yeah, yeah. And, or, or also the in one of the episodes, you can save Harvey Dent, who's driving and gets attacked, or you can go save Montoya, um, who has gone off on her own to to fight the children of Arkham. 
Um, and in that cutscene, Montoya just wasn't there at all. Uh, Batman's just having a conversation with air. Uh, it's there's, there's, <laughs> oh, no. there's weird stuff like, like, and it's, it's all the versions. There's not a version that works the best. It's at this point, the PC version I think does work the best out of the, those three. I haven't played it on the switch. Hopefully since that was, you know, a relatively recent port, it would, it would, uh, fare well. the best, but, um, but yeah, there are issues across the board, uh, and even like so. I've been I've been a good Batman in my my current playthrough, um, and in episode three, when the uh, bat signal comes up for the first time, I go talk to Jordan, and he's like, "I'd rather have you arrested than um, you know talk to you." But I'm calling a truce for tonight, and I'm like, "What? We've been buddies this yeah. whole time. You've said nothing but how much like you want the people of Gotham to see me the way you do." Uh, so I like I don't know what happened between episode two and three. Uh, who knows? Uh, but th- there's definitely some some weird stuff uh, going on there. Um, but so elephant in the room, John Doe uh, yes. appears for only one episode in season one. And he's up there with Mark Hamill and Heath Ledger yeah, as he's great. one of the best Jokers. Like, so good. Makes yeah. it his own. Great laugh. Um, weirdly innocent. Yep. Uh, and it, but he's also crazy, and it just works so well. Yeah. Oh, it, it, and, and like, the, it's the, the innocent part of that that really caught me kind of off guard. Is is like is the way it plays because he really is. Like you can see it in there, like that. That's eventually what this is going to come out to. Mm-hmm. Um, but when they introduce him, and and especially when he because he's a very central character in in um in in season two, that it is a fantastic like descent. Um, because with the with the innocence and, and him helping and and you know like you kind of deciding whether or not you are his friend and you're gonna try to like I spent I think my my core of season two mm-hmm. um, was spent trying to see if you could actually save him. Uh, spoiler: you can't. You not. cannot. <laughs> <laughs> You cannot, but trying to see if that if that was something that could actually happen, yes. um, because like he, like I I felt responsible for him. Yeah, and, and yeah, yeah, yeah. They <laughs> do a really a really great job of of not like making I, uh, of having of having stakes that are high outside of him, but of making that like the human cost that it's like, you know, like this dude is crazy. Right. There is, there is no doubt about that. He has serious tendencies that, that like he definitely leans towards hurting people. Yes. Um, and just that like, and, but, but there's this, there's this terrible like glimmer of hope when you talk to him, especially throughout season two, because uh, in, in the first episode that he's in, in, in season one, he's just kind of, he's creepy. He wants to be friends with you. Uh, he actually kind of saves you because you're, you're starting to get beat up by some guys because you get admitted into Arkham. Um, and 
you know, he's he's very ominous in some of the things that he yeah. says. Like, he definitely comes into his own in the second season. But, I mean, part of that is just because he only gets, like, half an episode in, in season one. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but in season, I mean, he feels like, he feels like a kid who was, like, born in an, in an, in a mental institution or, be, like, an insane asylum. Like, not a place that's healthy uh that's trying to fix people but just has them like you know quartered off um and like that has been his only interaction with the world yep. because he just he doesn't understand how things work uh there was no tragic accident he didn't he wasn't a comedian that you know got bullied by some criminals and fell into a vat of acid or anything. Like he's he's really just a guy who he's got a bent towards violence and he does not understand how the world works. And because he is odd, like the world does not treat him well. Yeah. Um. And he'll he'll say things that like I don't know who specifically wrote. Um. John Doe's dialogue, but he'll say things that like are just so like far out there in some ways, and you're just like you're like your brain went there, and then then he'll catch himself and he's like, no, you're stupid, and like he'll you know he hits himself on the set. He does he has like very authentic feeling like mannerisms uh, for yes. uh, the, just the, the way he deals with himself. And like you, you want to just be like John, it's it's okay, like and you, you can't make it okay, um, because no matter what you do, no matter what advice you give him, it backfires. Um, Sometimes very spectacularly. Yes, um, and in in another kind of thing of like um, basically the the way that the story works at the end of the fourth episode of the final season of the second season, which I guess is also the final season, um, you can either trust John Doe to bring in Harley Quinn, or you can not trust him. And, uh, and basically if you trust him, then he becomes a vigilante like Batman, uh, but also, uh, you know, an obviously crazier version of it. Yes. Uh, and if you don't trust him, then he becomes very like classic Joker. Um, and personally, I think it, it, it's heartbreaking because like, I don't like making that choice, but also the game gives you, I think four opportunities to mistrust Joker, uh, at the end of episode four, uh, cause you meet him, he tells you to meet him at a, at a fun house, uh, where he's going to tell you, uh, where Harley is or whatever, because he's gone out looking for her. Uh, and basically he's figured out that you're Batman and you can deny it. And then at the end, basically you say whether or not, you know, you want him to help you bring Harley in. Yeah. And so you can say right there that you don't want his help. And then that's boom. End of the friendship. He is like all ties are severed. There's no chance to, to bring him back. Uh, or you can go to the bridge where Harley Quinn is. And also, I just like the fact that, like, Harley Quinn exists in this universe before the Joker, and her, um, her antics are kind of what inspires his 
Uh, yes, yeah, that it's his it's, name it's and the everything. Opposite. He's the one that's uh, chasing her. Yes, uh, I, I really, I really like that. Um, but uh, when you're on the bridge, basically, he says that he can bring her in. You know, as, as long as you know they're not going to shoot her or anything, as long as she's going to be okay, because he is like head over heels in love with her. Uh, like he'll he'll bring her in, and so you can tell him again, no, there. Uh, and then while he's doing it, like you can't really hear. You're you're standing there with Amanda Waller, and like multiple times she wants to send the guys in to uh, capture Harley, and you have to like hold her off. And so you you get many opportunities to uh, not trust him and stab him in the back. Uh, but the thing is, is that the episode where he goes full blown Joker. Like I think it works so much better than him as a vigilante. Like I like oh, that idea. Somewhere. This is where we're I think disagree. it's fun, but but classic Joker. Like it just like because the city just falls apart completely. Like all of you, what you've tried to do to save Gotham just gets crumbled into dust. And I think I think it just works so much better. Oh, see, so, okay, so. I I was very much uh I number one, I think that the like the vigilante joker was just such an awesome idea. It is um, it is fun. Yes, it, absolutely. Like, I'm not, it's fun, not but I, what I really like is that it is um it is an opportunity uh for them and for, for Bruce to find out just what kind of vigilante he wants to be. Mm. Um, and to kind of solidify that for himself, uh, because John is always going to take that, is always going to ratchet what he does and the advice he gives up to like twelve. Yes, um, especially when it comes to fighting for justice and 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 what he perceives are the injustices rather than what could be considered like a universal injustice. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it makes it makes the point at the end where. Batman has kind of chased this, you know, like vigilante Joker to stop him from killing people into, um, uh, I want to say it's like, it's, it's basically ace chemicals. Yes. Um, and it makes that, I want to say it makes the moment where the actual turn to the Joker happens just that much more amazing. Because it is it for all of this time, it is Bruce trying to save him and trying to do that, and it's just like forces at work against him. And then the moment where he just where you like you can almost see the snap happen, and he kills the cops that are around him, and then just kind of makes the beeline for Batman himself. That you're. it kind of it it in a way absolves Bruce from you know like this was bound to happen this was going to happen but in another way it really kind of it I think it ties the two of them together um, where Bruce is like no this is this is this has to be stopped now yeah in a way that just like like the I I really like their interpretation of classic joker and his spat suit and everything but i really mm-hmm. think that like for me personally that one um that just that turn itself uh, was so worth was so worth everything else 
I can see that. Um, but I guess one of the things that I, I like is that in basically in the vigilante Joker version of the story, it's inevitable that the Joker becomes yes. the Joker. And in the villain version of the story, it's partially Bruce Wayne's fault. And I don't know why I like punishing my heroes, but <laughs> I kind of like um I kind of like him being implicated in that in some ways. Uh it I don't know. It and it, it kind of just goes to what you said, having them be connected. Yeah. Um because and the version where he's the the villain, instead of being at Ace Chemicals, it goes back to the funhouse. And he and Harley Quinn are a team at this point. Uh, and when you fight, you're like out on a deck near a, a roller coaster. And you're both just kind of laying there. And in the other one, you're in like a control room, you know, above the, the chemicals and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and, and you're both basically like just stabbing each other with batarangs and knives and stuff. Yeah. Um, and, and in both versions, like they, both characters just beat the crap out of each other. Uh, but there's something about the, the villain version where you're out there and, um, I don't remember how the dialogue's a little bit different. Um, but the Joker's asking if he, if, you know, Batman ever really cared about him, if he ever, um, you know, that kind of stuff. And also, in, in that version, in the villain version, you are Bruce Wayne because you've actually been abducted. Yes. Um, and whereas in the other one, you go as, as Batman. Uh, but you're both kind of laying there, you know, beaten up and everything. And it, it reminds me of the scene in The Dark Knight where the Joker's hanging upside down and saying that we're just destined to do this forever mm-hmm. because, you know, you won't kill me and I won't stop because you're just too much fun um and there's i don't know something about that moment that reminds me of that and that's probably also part of why and the last part is i feel like the twist of who killed the riddler because that's kind of the uh inciting incident that starts a lot of the stuff yes uh the riddler uh comes back to town and their version of the riddler i think works really well also um but um it ends up being lucius fox's daughter and in the the vigilante version, uh, she just kind of like appears with like a gun and like you know it's like hey yeah I killed the Riddler and I don't know it just it feels really clumsy and in the other the the villain version she's also been abducted and it it feels more of a just kind of like oh yeah I I was like it's it's thrown away information instead of being a revelation uh, and I feel like it works a little better that way because I, I was not actually a fan of the twist. As far as twist goes, I think um, Vicky Vale being Lady Arkham works way better because like at the beginning of season one, it's like, oh yeah, I saw Tim Burton's Batman. Like, I want to be friends with Vicky Vale. Vicky Vale's great. She's a reporter. She's, she's doing good things in the world. Um, and, you know, Kim Basinger. But... Um, and so when when you find out that you know she is the <laughs> cult leader leading the the children of Arkham, uh, I think it worked really well. But the um, uh, Tiffany uh, reveal with the the killing of the Riddler, I don't know. I just I don't think it worked. See, as so well. So for for like 
I thought it, especially with the vigilante one, I thought it worked. It worked rather well, just because the the choices that I had made previously before that, mm-hmm. the the choices to trust her and to enforce that, you know, like that that there is a a kind of a right way to do things and a wrong way, and you can't just you can't just kill people. Right. Um, so that when it came down to that last part, um, it was her turning herself in, mm. and. Like to me that like that made and it was like and not only that but also I really really liked the option where it allowed Bruce to to be human and to say that you know to to allow for mistakes to happen mm-hmm. and to be like no you have done the right thing and when you get out of there you know like your journey with me is not done mm. we're I you know like we're because she becomes kind of this little sidekick. Right. Um and and so his and and for him to say no 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 it's listen it's okay. You can come back from this. Hmm. And it gives her the chance to do that and I thought that 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 was done really well. Gotcha. Like I in fact like it was the um and I and it's probably because um the different part for me like I was when I reviewed it um I was sent a save um, mm-hmm. For I was sent two saves, uh, one for Vigilante Joker and one for um, your kind of your your classic Joker. Yeah. Um, so for the good and the bad path, as it were, um, or the trust John and not trust John. Right. <laughs> um, and so, like I, you know, I did my my path was the Vigilante one, and that's that's the one I took all the way through for trusting right. John and trying to get him, trying to get him the help he needed. Um, and so for to jump into the fifth one to kind of see where that does and see her at the end of that mm-hmm. um where she kind of shows up in the helicopter and then walks by you know with like like all this craziness happening and i was like wow like that for me felt very out there because it just sure. like that was such so opposite of every single choice i had made right and that i mean i don't know that's that's not the ideal way to to play that yeah. obviously um so when so when i did my first one i like I said, I was trying to do like gut reactions of what Batman would do. The second time I played it, I was trying to be like upright, like and like in the first season, most decisions are relatively cut and dry. Uh it gets a lot messier in the second season in terms of decisions of like who you're helping cuz you're a double agent in the uh the pact which is Harley Quinn's like gang gang with um the Joker and Bane and Mr. Freeze. And uh, so the first one, like, Bruce Wayne was a a pretty good guy. But then in the second one, because of, like, the lines that I had mentally drawn in the sand for myself of how I was making decisions, like, Bruce royally screws over a bunch of people in that version. Yeah. Um, And so if you don't trust uh, Tiffany and basically, you know, uh, tell her that you're Batman and she starts coming up with ideas for how she can help you and, and all that kind of stuff. If you discourage that, then she actually becomes a um, an agent for, um, I was going to say The Division, but that's a completely different Yeah, but uh, no, she game. works for Waller. Uh, she works for Waller, yeah. yeah. And it's it's really interesting kind of just how all of that stuff plays out and you could do a version where you encourage Tiffany and you know you know uh have 
the villain version of the Joker at the end, and uh, I haven't actually done that mixture of things, but that'll actually be on my my current playthrough, uh, because then I did a third playthrough where uh, it was basically the idea of, okay, what if Bruce Wayne is the, the Playboy facade? What if that's not the facade? What if that is kind of actually who Bruce Wayne is? And so Batman is less of a... Um, less of a a person who is fighting for truth and justice in the American way, even though it's technically another guy. But um, if he is, you know, kind of a, a thrill seeker and uh, adrenaline junkie, and he's doing it because he has the money and power to, to do, do it. it. Okay. Um, and that that is really interesting because in that version, uh, he and uh, Selena Kyle get along a lot better (laughs) but um but in the end of of that one that's the one where uh tiffany was part of the the agency and like in in that version uh because at the very end of the of season two alfred has discovered in season two he's got this trimmer and he's discovered that it's not an actual medical condition it is from the stress of the double life that that bruce wayne is leading basically and he has decided to leave Gotham behind because uh, when he made the decision to to step away from that, then like all of his symptoms went away. And so he basically wants to tell, you know, give you the the option to do that. Um, and in my my first playthrough, uh, I felt like Batman felt too guilty and like he couldn't leave it behind as as much as he wanted to stop being Batman for Alfred. There's also the bat signal, you know, in the sky behind yeah. you, and like he he just can't. Um, and in the 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 jerk Playboy version of Bruce Wayne that I did, uh, Alfred is going to tell you. So basically, uh, he wants to tell you what he's been thinking because uh, he's already got his bags packed, uh, and you can tell him, yeah, sure, like let's talk. We can, you know, you can stay. Like we'll we'll figure this out. Uh, but one of the options is basically you packed your bags. You've already made your decision. And Alfred's just like, oh. And he just basically gets up, picks up his bags, and walks out. Damn. And you don't get the choice to to call him back or anything. Uh, and the light doesn't shine. Like, it's not. You're just alone. Uh, and it felt so terrible. And that's the version also where at the end of season one... Um, the Lady Arkham, Vicky Vale, has captured Alfred, and she's got her concussion staff thing, like, pointed at his face, and she wants you to reveal your face. Uh, and, you know, three out of four playthroughs, I've revealed my face, because obviously I'm going to do whatever I can to save Alfred, as we previously discussed. Uh, but then once, it's just like, no, like, to this Batman, like, my secrets are apparently more important than people. And um, he loses it damn eye he wears an eye patch for all of season two because you wouldn't show your face and like every time i saw alfred with his eye patch like i felt terrible it was worse than leaving duck hanging oh my god (laughs) it's awful yeah yeah that feels that way yes i can't even i like i i can't fathom i was committed that that choice that's insane that playthrough was like very emotionally stressful. It was. <laughs> I felt so bad. 
Um, yeah, it was it it wasn't it wasn't great. Um, but also, so yeah, going back to the Vicky Vale, like also just another example of like where things. Like, it feels like one version of the story makes more sense for the overall story. At one point in season one, uh, you get kicked out of Wayne Enterprises, and Lucius offers to come work for you at the Batcave, and you can tell him yes, or tell him that you need an inside man at at, uh, at Wayne Tower. Mm. What did you do, just out of curiosity? Um, I believe I said I needed an inside man at Wayne Tower. Okay, yeah, so yes. that, that's the one that makes sense to me. Um, and at the end of the episode, basically, uh, before the, the final fight, um, just all the stuff that you've gone through, your bat suit has been pretty much destroyed. And so you go back to like your original bat suit, which is like classic, mm-hmm. just material, not armor. It's just like fabric. Um, and I think that works really well because that, in in some ways, uh, puts you on more of an equal footing slash gives you a disadvantage against Lady Arkham. Yes. Um, because you in in the fight you get the crap beaten out of you, just like I mean Batman gets the crap beaten out of him in pretty much every fight in these games. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, he rarely comes out unscathed. Um. But if you tell Lucius to come with you, then when you go to Arkham for the final confrontation, he actually gives you a more advanced suit, which looks like kind of a, a halfway between the Season 1 suit and the Season 2 suit. Um, and it changes nothing. You still get the crap Can't beaten out of you. you. <laughs> and, and, like, it just it doesn't make sense, because, like, you should be better equipped. Mm-hmm. Than you are with literally just like a skin tight shirt, pants, and a mask and a cape. <laughs> You're like halfway Iron Man in that suit, and it makes it makes no difference. So it feels like like obviously the final fight should be in that that uh, original suit, not a more advanced suit mm-hmm. that makes no gameplay or story difference. Um, so it's it's weird that there's still those kind of moments. Uh, but also, what just one of the random things about season two? Basically, all of the technical issues in season one are gone in season two. Uh, it runs so much better. Um, it doesn't have the pausing. It doesn't have the crazy frame rate drops. Um, it's uh, it is. But I feel like just the way that they do all of these characters, you gotta play season one to go and carry that save over into season two because it's. It's just so cool um, crafting your own version of of Batman. Yeah, it's 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 it is an amazing, amazing like just series, and I think it's some of the best writing that they did. Mm-hmm. And I mean, like I know I am naturally predisposed to enjoy that stuff more than other people, sure. um, but I just because of the fact that it's a character you understand. It's something that you can that you can make your own version, and the, just the the different things they did to separate their world from kind of the rest of Batman that we've had so far. Yeah, I think are just like they they made some real like amazing choices, and it was like, damn, you guys really went all out for it, and I'm really sorry that we probably will never get another one of these from you. Yeah, 
that is that is unfortunate um it uh i don't know i mean you know telltale at this point in name has been resurrected and i think some people i don't think i don't know if it's very many um have been have been brought back and i think they're officially working on uh a season two for the wolf among us they've gotten some of the licenses back um because obviously like the walking dead went to skybound and they finished um they finished the final season there uh but everything as far as telltale is very nebulous i would love to see a a third season and really a final season like I i feel like in a lot of ways two works well as an end because of the choice that you get to continue being Batman without Alfred or to stop being Batman. Um, because like at, with my second character, which I intended to be very good and everything just unraveled throughout season two. (laughs) Like it was, it was the thing. It's like, okay, I, I started to save Gotham and I did some good, but by and large, like being Batman has, has hurt the city. Um, in ways that I never intended. And so it's not only better for Alfred, it's not only better for Bruce Wayne, it's it's better for Gotham at this point for Batman to stop. <laughs> um, and uh, But uh, I, I think it would be really cool for them to do a third season, and you would basically kind of have to do what they did for the last episode of um, of season two for the first episode of season one. Yeah where you have it completely different whether or not you are still Batman or not Batman. And you would have to have something that draws Batman yes. back if it would, you're it would, not Batman. It would literally be like a one-episode thing of this is what's going on, this is who's needed now. Right. And, yeah. I, and um, I, like, I would love to, for the end there, there actually to be just you know like that weird false like 10-minute ending of like, no, nah, I'm not putting that back on. um but honestly like in all of that i think the really the because you've done the joker um and the joker may or may not be dead um like he's i don't know he's like dying at the like no matter what playthrough you do he is (laughs) you've beaten the crap out of him um so I think he needs to be there, but I think the best option would be to do a Ra's al Ghul, uh, League of you know League of Shadows, League of Assassins. It would probably have to be um, something that big in order to get yeah. him back. Um, like the other, the other kind of way you could go with that is, um, I would really like to see, and I think that that would be the place to do it. Like mm-hmm. a real, almost nuanced take on Killer Croc, mm. and okay. like have, you know that that there there's all these weird killings that are going on, and like sure. have a real like kind of almost like supernatural Batman story, and then it turns out that it's really just this dude, and he's he's not you know like have him not be the big dumb like wrestler Croc guy. Yeah. But like go in a totally different direction for him, and I think that would be kind of neat. Sure. Uh did you ever read the Batman Earth One stuff? I don't think so. Uh, uh so they I don't know if they're still doing it, but DC at one point was doing a series of Earth One comics where I don't think 
each Earth One comic is like connected to the other. Um, there's not a like Earth One that all of these take place on, but the idea was that like it's a it's a tight focus on one character um, from the the DC mythos, and it's trying to in some ways it's almost like a Marvel Ultimate um, idea. So they did three volumes for Superman, and by and large, I don't think those work at all. Um, but the, the Batman ones that they did, I think it's the second volume, uh, has a killer croc that is an outcast who lives in the sewers of Gotham and is constantly blamed for like killings. And he's just like this innocent guy that like relatively early on in the graphic novel, Batman goes and beats the crap out of, uh, cause he thinks he's, you know, found the, the killer, uh, and it ends like Killer Croc, just an innocent dude that is like, you know, not not a part of any of this. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, th- I think having a villain version is better. But like, I think you can create definitely create a not so monstrous, very sympathetic uh, version of that character um, in some ways, almost the, the way that they did with the Joker. Um, and I would always one of my favorite Batman villains has always been Hush. Um, I think. I think that would be good because you could even with Hush, you could have him essentially pretending to be Batman, and perhaps that's part of the reason that yeah, or draws or, him back or to... do the you know like he he does the the pretending to be Bruce Wayne thing, and the only yeah. the only way Bruce Wayne can figure this out is to actually go under as Batman, yeah, and to be like, no, I I can't be me right now. If I'm me, I'm in, I'm putting everybody else in danger. They think I, you know, they think it's somebody else, and yeah, let me go in, let me find out what's going on. Yeah, I, I think there, I think there are several like ways that they could go. Uh, it had, it would have to go big, um, and I, I would love to see one more, one more go at it. Yeah, um, I doubt it's going to happen. And like I said, I'm, I'm pretty happy with like where it leaves off because yes. it's not like it's the middle of you know the final season of the walking dead or something <laughs> we got we got a good ending yes we, yeah, we um did. but uh but it is is one of the few telltale series that i would i genuinely would want more of um it's besides the first season of the walking dead it's it's my favorite telltale game and I, I think of season one and two as kind of being like one thing, just one big thing. Yeah, no, yeah. absolutely. And I'm not, yes, I'm totally down with that. And yeah, yeah I think I, honestly, I think they are they they are right up there. That's yeah. they're some of the best games that came out. I think it's a, with what they were doing and their style. Mm-hmm. I think that's as good as Telltale could put out. Sure. And I, I think it's also just like a, a kind of a, a glimmer of I think what telltale could have done if they weren't again shackled by basically the legacy of the yeah and their own stuff exactly yeah just yeah it's great it's it's it's, these these games were fantastic yep absolutely absolutely I, i don't know if many people would say this but they are even you know maybe some other very popular batman games Notwithstanding that these are my favorite Batman video games. That's that's fair. That is totally fair. I mean, we we specifically will talk about some other Batman games before this yes, whole thing will. is done. Yes, we will. 
Uh, obviously, for anybody that's wondering, is we're obviously talking about Lego Batman. Yeah, one hundred percent. But it's, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, it's um, you know, to, to wrap it all up, Batman the Telltale series is good. People should play it. It is good. Uh, goes on sale pretty regularly. Get oh, it I'm on sure. Whatever yeah, during console. a Steam sale, you can get it yeah. pretty quick. And pretty you know, cheap. whatever platform you want. Uh, it's actually, I mean, at one point it was on Switch for like $3 a season. Like, it, it gets stupid cheap. So if you see it, buy it. Play it. Love it. All right. Uh, I think that does it. Any any final thoughts? No, man. That's, that's it. I think we covered this. This is, yeah. like, obviously, I mean, if you want more in-depth super thoughts, we have... I want to say at least two podcasts talking about this series Probably, at some yeah. other point, but yeah, yeah, no, just for a kind of wrap up. Hey, this is a game of the decade for sure. That mm-hmm. did this is. I mean, that's it's fantastic. It is. It is indeed. All right. Well, Brian, thank you for for chatting with me about Batman: The Telltale Series, and I guess technically Batman: The Enemy Within. Um, and uh, we'll be back in just a little bit to talk about some more of our favorite games of the decade. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Darkcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Miley. Joining me once again is Lauren Clark. How you doing, Lauren? Good, good. How are you? I'm doing good. I, uh, I am hunkered down in my apartment, uh, which... Uh, if you're listen, if people are listening to this when it comes out, then they know exactly why. But also, that's just the way that I live life is I stay in my apartment most of the time. Uh, so it's not really any different. You could we could do this again in like a year, uh, and the the situation for me would be largely the same. Um, you know, talking about coronavirus, COVID nineteen, all that kind of fun stuff. So, um, but you know, one of the nice things about video games. Is that they don't require they you can social you can do them socially distant from other people, um, and uh, you know that's that's good. I like I don't know why I'm talking about that so much right now, but uh, it is everywhere in the news. It's kind of nauseating uh, just seeing how much it is everywhere but then I'll see somebody talking about something that's not related to the current global situation and you know they're doing their normal job of reporting about video games or movies or whatever and something in the back of my head is like how are you not, how are you talking about that and not about what's going on in the world um, and my, my brain just plays like back and forth with that but I think you know you always have to have some sort of escape um and at least we as Americans, or at least a lot of Americans, um, are very fortunate to have something like video games to escape into. Uh, sometimes, though, the world you escape into is not a better place, but maybe a much, much worse place. <laughs> um, and I think the world of Dark Souls is probably a much, much worse place to actually live in. That is true. <laughs> but Dark Souls 2 is interesting. Um, and it actually, maybe this is a good timing to talk about Dark Souls 2. Because, you know, Dark Souls 2, the setup is there has been a plague. It's the undead curse. And it has really affected people and affected their lives and, and how their world is shaped. 
But one of the things that they make kind of a big deal about is other people can help you. And, you know, having other people in this bleak world really makes the game so much more rich and less depressing. <laughs> mm. That's good. That's good. I, um, I've, I've never played the second one. I played a little bit of the, the first one. And we're going to have a bigger conversation when it comes to uh, the original Dark Souls because uh, that's one of the most influential games that has existed, spawning, you know, what, three sequels, uh, multiple games from the same studio of a similar ilk, and then just a whole bunch of other games that do uh, the a similar brand of uh, death and rebirth and the way experience works and all kinds of stuff. It's, it's, it's really kind of cool how uh, that has spread throughout the, the past generation of of video games but what i've always heard about dark souls 2 is that it's kind of of the three is kind of like the black sheep of the three so yes. why are, why are we sitting down to talk about two per se and not not three well i'll be honest with you for me of the dark souls trilogy not counting demon souls and bloodborne dark souls 2 is actually my favorite okay. um there are a sizable minority that really thinks Dark Souls 2 is in some ways the best one. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. So I think it depends on what you're looking for. Um, one thing that Dark Souls 2 did was um, it forced you to get good. Uh, like in Dark Souls 3 and to a lesser extent Dark Souls 1, a lot of times you could kind of cheese the game in a way. So like in Dark Souls 3 it was rolling. Like there would be these big ganks of enemies and you could just basically roll through them. I played the Dark Souls 3 DLC and I basically just ran through all of the areas because there were so many enemies and I was so frustrated. Um, <laughs> you can't do that in Dark Souls 2. <laughs> well, I guess I say I should say you can, but it's much much harder. Mm. Um, and Dark Souls 1 had poise which was its kind of way to do that where you could just be this big guy in armor and then nothing could like really you know knock you off your feet but dark souls 2 doesn't allow you to do that either um so i think a lot of people were went into it expecting it to be what dark souls 3 ultimately was which was a direct sequel to dark souls 1 mm. but what dark souls 2 did that in my opinion really uh, makes it great is it kind of it looked at the human element of the curse. So the first one is all about kings and gods and all of that. This one is really more about, um, you know, how it affects people and what it's like to be a hollow or to have the undead curse. And you know, how can you get beyond that initial thing? Dark Souls three story couldn't exist without Dark Souls two and what they established with the cycles and all of that stuff as well. So I really feel like it's a monumentally important game in the series, even if it's not your favorite. Interesting. Okay. Um. So, is, are there any elements that kind of? It sounds like, besides the story, as far as gameplay goes, what you're describing is kind of. I don't want to say a lack of mechanics because that, that doesn't sound like what you're saying, but it's a, a lack of a particular thing, not like the presence of something like you can't do poison. You can't just roll through things. Is there anything mechanically that makes um, Dark Souls 2 different or more unique or I don't know, just 
anything that you appreciate that's different from the other two? Um, Dark Souls 2 mechanics are actually quite different. So sure. I think that may be one of the problems that people have with it. Um, so they introduced a stat called adaptability, which is basically controls the number of iframes you have. So your base adaptability um, is less iframes than Dark Souls 1 starts off with. Um, the cool thing about that, though, is that you can get more iframes than you could in Dark Souls 1 uh, because it's a stat that raises and lowers, right? Mm, right. So, okay. um, so that's that's one aspect of, of that um, that a lot of people don't like. Um, but I don't mind so much. Um, the other thing that they introduced that hasn't been in any of the other games is power stancing. So basically you could have two weapons of the same class, uh, one on each hand. You could power stance it and it would give you um, more damage um, for each weapon than you would if you just had one in your hand. Okay. Um, yeah, which encouraged a different kind of play of no shielding, you know, timing your dodges correctly and all of that sort of thing, um, which was quite fun. Um, they also introduced life gems, which are basically infinite consumables, so no infinite heal consumable. So you were no longer limited by how many Estus flasks you had. Um, you could just buy all the life gems you wanted and heal infinitely, hmm. um, which was also quite fun, especially for some of the longer areas. Um, sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, they really fleshed out dark magic. It was introduced in Dark Souls 1, I think, in the DLC, but they, but Dark Souls 2 really fleshed it out, made it a magic slash faith um, stat requirement. Um, so if you're a magic user, dark magic was really fun. Uh, it was an alternate magic class that you could do some interesting things with. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, it's um, kind of going back to uh, what you're talking about a little bit before of just of it being very different uh, from necessarily what you're expecting. That's that's something that I'm weirdly facing right now with it's not at all a similar game, but uh, Ori and the Blind Forest and its sequel, Ori and the Will of the Wisp. Mm. Um, it's there are two major changes to to that game. The first one being. Uh, the save system, the previous one, you used your, you had magic that you could do abilities with, but you also used magic to create, uh, in the game, it's called a soul link. And it's basically, that's the way checkpoints work in the game. Mm -hmm. um, you don't have any other manual save, so you have to have magic to be able to save, um, and you have to remember to do it. And it's, I don't know, I always thought it was really neat because as you level up you can do things where like when you save it actually restores some of your life and all this you know various kinds of things that uh that go into it so like even just like saving the game became part of the strategy of the way that you played uh and now the game uh, the will of the wisp just use a, a flat um auto save which yeah. i'm sure like 97 percent of the people that played the original game or heard about the game are like oh that's great that's what i want that makes more sense i know how to do that and i'm like i really wish you had the old save system in this um <laughs> and the other thing is the combat now you have this uh light sword thing uh and so it's very 
uh, melee driven combat. In the previous one, you had this little orb that was floating around you, and when you attacked, it would shoot these little fireball-y things out. Uh, so combat is just completely different. And again, I remember people not liking the other one because you didn't aim with the previous system. Uh, basically, just whatever enemy was closest to the orb, uh, that's what you were going to fire at. And so this is a much more natural and, I don't know, normal type of combat mechanic. But I'm just like, I really, I kind of like the old one. Um, and I'm, I'm actually going back and forth and playing both at the same time just because, like, I really want to play the new one, and I like what the new one's doing, but when I play it for so long, I'm just like, I kind of wish this was the old game. <laughs> yeah, I think that that's kind of the trouble with sequels because it's like if they try something new, people are upset, but if they do the same thing, then people say, well, this is just the same game. Exactly, so they, yep. they really have a hard time with that. <laughs> they do. It's... um. Man, it, it is rare the sequel that just does that does new and different, but you know, only to the extent that somehow that's what you wanted. Games like Assassin's Creed Two and Uncharted Two come to mind, and that of like kind of fulfilling the vision of of the first game. But I feel like part of the reason that is is because those first games weren't actually very good. Um, <laughs> so. And anybody, anybody's welcome to come fight me on Uncharted 1. Uncharted 1 is not a good game. I've said it for a long time. It, it's, just, it's just not. But anyway. <laughs> um, so uh, as far as like the, um, the iframes and stuff like that in Dark Souls 2, you can increase those, but they start at a lower level. So is, does the game feel more difficult in general? at the start of it? Because I feel like it, at least fewer iframes, um, if nothing else, would make it feel more challenging, I guess, than maybe just what muscle memory is, is used to. Um, yeah, it is more challenging in the beginning, but I would make the argument that all of the FromSoft games are challenging, more challenging at the beginning than the later ones. Like in Bloodborne, you can't level up right away, and mm -hmm. Yarnum is just crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Dark Souls is pretty difficult in the beginning because you don't have the ability to warp and, you know, if you get stuck in the wrong place, you might not be able to get back to the blacksmith. So, I mean, I think all of them have like this difficulty curve at the very beginning that kind of goes away once you know how to play the game, but sure. the first time it's going to be rough. <laughs> right. I, I meant, and compared to like Dark Souls One or Dark Souls Three, do you feel like the start is more difficult than either of those? A little bit, but okay. not. I think on your first playthrough, it is. I think on your subsequent playthroughs, it's not really. Okay. Um, there, one of the cool things about Dark Souls Two um, is there are so many places that you can go at the beginning, and. Um, there's a very, very achievable boss that you can do as your first boss. And if you can do that cheese, um, and it's not very hard to do, um, you can set yourself up to be, you know, strong enough fairly quickly. <laughs> mm. Okay. Now, I know there are, there are probably more versions of Dark Souls 2 than any other Dark Souls games. I mean, they've yes. all had various expansions that have come out, uh, but I want to. I feel like that this came out for the 360 and PS3 first. 
and then it came out for Xbox One and PS4. And when that happened, I want to say that there was like a basically a game of the year version type thing that changed a whole bunch of stuff beyond just like adding content. Uh, I feel like I remember they talked about like changing a bunch of stuff. What, what versions did you play, and can you talk about any of that? Or am I am I not actually remembering any of that correctly? No, you're completely correct. Um, I played and platinumed both versions. <laughs> okay. Um, I was pretty darn obsessed with Dark Souls 2 for a long time. Um, it may be the From Software game that I have the most time in. Um, so, on the first one, it came out for the PS3 and Xbox, as you said. Um, and then they released three DLCs. The three DLCs are quite long. Um, they're almost their own game. Um, the level design in them is quite different. They're substantially harder than the regular game. Um, and a lot of people consider that to be the best part of Dark Souls are the deal. Dark Souls 2 are the okay. DLCs. Um, after the PS4 came out, they really wanted to port it really quickly for obvious reasons. So um, they made a new version, and they changed some of the enemy placements. Um, and the DLC was included in that. Um, so it was all a complete package. But they did change some of the enemy placements, which was quite controversial. Um, some people like the new enemy placements, some don't. Um, I prefer the original, but, um, since the Scholar of the First Sin is the name of the expansion, um, since that one is on PS4 and that's the console that I have on and, and that tends to be the one that I play, um, they did add some other really cool things like there are invisible, um, enemies that if you kill them, you get an item. Um, there are hidden poison butterflies hidden around and so you can make a game of trying to find all the hidden ones and shoot them down <laughs> that sounds like a very dark soulsy thing to do it's like let's yeah. take butterflies and let's make them poison <laughs> yes and they were in the original game but the hidden ones were not so mm. um so they did some cool things like that and the new one. Um, and the new one, of course, looks better, but um, I did prefer the original enemy placements. Okay, so it wasn't any other major changes to, to gameplay or the structure of the the core game. I thought I remember, I guess it was just the the enemies, but I thought I'd remember there being other things that they had changed. Well, they, they changed one or two other things that might be significant. Um, okay. They inserted a new boss at the end, a new final boss. Um, in order to get that final boss, you had to kill an optional boss. Um, and that final boss was very lore-driven. Um, so if you do it correct, if you do it in the right sequence, you can actually face three bosses in a row at the end. <laughs> oh, that sounds fun. Yeah. Well, you don't have the nice thing is once you've killed one, they're dead. You don't have to redo them. So if you die on the second one or on the third one, you don't have to redo all the other ones. That's, so that's that's nice. <laughs> that's good. Yeah. 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 Um. So I think that that this the stuff that they added in the game to make that final boss happen um, was different. They added a different ending actually. Mm. Um. So in the first game. 
or first one, you only had one ending, and in the, the Scholar of the First Sin, you actually had a choice of two endings, just like Dark Souls 1. Hmm. And okay. Yeah, and they're kind of similar to Dark Souls 1 ending, but significantly different in lore. Okay, interesting. Um, I didn't actually know that Dark Souls, any of the Dark Souls had alternate endings. Are they just choices that you have? Is it based on things that you kill is it a morality thing what how do the how do those choices come into play um after you beat the final boss you can choose to link the fire or walk away um originally dark souls 2 dark souls 2's ending is um very existential actually all of dark souls 2 is very existential um So it's not very like clear like what you do at the end because it's basically it's really open ended what mm. the end is. Um, the cool thing about the alternate ending and spoiler alert, of course, um, you can choose to walk away. But when you walk away, you're not saying you're not giving up. You're basically saying I'm going to find a way around this curse. I'm going to mm. figure out another way to solve this curse rather than linking the fire. Um, which I think is pretty cool. That is cool. That is cool. So it, talking about the kind of existential nature of it, I mean, I, I feel like the, the plots of, well, again, I've only actually played any of the, the first one, but in stuff that I was reading about it when I was trying to dive headfirst into it and you know, the water was too shallow and I, I hit my head and it was not a good experience. <laughs> um, it, it felt like a lot of the the background of it felt more like mythology than normal video game stories. Like a lot of video games have a whole lot of plot um, mm-hmm. and maybe not a whole lot of story. And this seemed like there was a lot of background, and then you're you know basically trying to survive. Uh, is is there like a I don't want to say a concrete story because that's not exactly what I mean, but um, you've talked a lot about kind of the the lore and this one being heavier on the side. It it felt like from what I, and again, this is from totally from outside perspective, but from the first one, it seemed like a lot of the lore was stuff that happened before the game. Um, And maybe there wasn't a whole lot of actual plot. Is that different with the second one? Or, again, is that just, am I not understanding Dark Souls? <laughs> um, so, um, there is a lot of, a lot of the, the the story is background, but as the player character, you're discovering the story. So, um, that's true in Dark Souls 1 as well. Um, so in Dark Souls 2, um, you, you come to this place and... Um, you get told you need to go find King Vendrick. Um, and to do that, you need to kill four bosses. Um, so good luck with that. I'll help you out where I can, but this is on you, right? So you go and again, spoiler alert, you find King Vendrick and he's a hollow. Um, he's just a shell of his former self. Um, and you're like, wait, this is the guy that I was supposed to find. What's up with this? So then, of course, you have to find out more. And um, at the end, you discover that he was searching for an end to the curse. He was searching for a way to circumvent the cycle. 
um, Dark Souls 2 is the game that really um, established that the uh, the undead curse and the linking of the flame is cyclical and that it happens over and over and over again, which Dark Souls 3 took that idea and um, took it to its logical conclusion. But mm. Dark Souls 2 was the one that really established that idea. Um, so Vendrick was trying to circumvent that cycle. Um, but a um, child of Manus, who was a boss from the first game, um, basically, uh, I don't want to say seduced him, but they were married. And um, she basically just wanted to have all of the power of the flame for herself. And when he realized that, he basically locked himself and his power away so that she couldn't get it. Um, which is a really, like, you know, a uh, hard moral thing to do. So Vendrick is a really interesting character. Um, and a lot of the characters are, are really interesting. Um, and it's so through finding out all of this information and finding out about the story, that's why I think that the more powerful ending of being able to walk away and try to, trying to find a different path is so, um, so unique and powerful. Sure. Yeah. So you you said the original ending though was more ambiguous. So was it not the linking of the flame? Was it not the other ending uh, mm. in the original game? No, it was not. Um, basically, um, the way they represent the kiln, which is where um, Gwen, the the final boss of the first game, was located, um, is as a throne. And so the first ending was that you take the throne. But there's a voiceover, and it basically says that only you can see what lies ahead. So it's implied that you link the flame, but it mm. it's not like explicitly shown like it is in the first game or okay. in the third game. Gotcha. Okay. I I feel like I I should know more about these games because they're so popular. But I just I they scare me so much. So I'm I'm glad I can ask you questions and we're safe and i'm not gonna just you know die because a monster uh came out of my closet or you know under the stairs or wherever monsters come from in dark souls i don't know Uh, you know i could (laughs) i could tell you the story of how i started with the soulsborne games and it might make you feel a little more confident (laughs) sure (laughs) so um I I grew up playing like Atari and NES games, um, and then I took a break for a while because of you know college and life and all that sort of thing. And then I got back into games around GameCube, um, but that means I skipped that phase where everything was becoming 3D. And when I started playing games again, everything was 3D. Um, when I was not used to that at all, <laughs> and I was really intimidated by learning how to control the camera i was like i don't have the the uh, dexterity to do this um and so i was just avoiding all games that forced me to control the camera Mm. then demon souls came out and for some reason there was something about it i really wanted to play it like Mm -hmm. i just was so obsessed with trying to play this game so um so i did play it and i did beat it with a little bit of help um but I did it mostly without controlling the camera. It was really hard. Wow. <laughs> yeah. That, okay. <laughs> so then I played Dark Souls 1 when it came out. 
because I was doing this as they were coming out. So I played Dark Souls 1 when it came out. Um, I was also very afraid of online play, and so I didn't summon anybody to help me. Um, <laughs> and every time I got invaded, I would freak out. <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't finish Dark Souls 1 the first time I played it. I got to ONS. I beat ONS with health. That was the first time I ever summoned anybody. Um, and after that, I was just worn out. <laughs> I was like, I got to take a break from this. So then Dark Souls 2 came out, and I was kind of on the fence because, you know, Dark Souls 1 hadn't really lived up to my expectations, and, you know, I was like, I don't know if I can do it. But I, I decided to try it, and I fell in love, and I got good, and I learned how to control <laughs> a camera, and I learned how to do online play, and I became, you know, really good at Dark Souls combat. <laughs> that. That sounds insane that you learned how to use a camera in a video game with Dark Souls 2. That just sounds... That you were you were a brave, brave person. That is, <laughs> or crazy. I don't know. which One of the two. Maybe a little both. I think, uh, I think both are required. Um, but, wow. Okay. So, I think you can do That's, it. That's what I'm I, saying. <laughs> well, the thing is, is for the most part, I really don't want to. That's the other yeah. side of it. If you don't want to, then that, that's going to kind of keep you from doing it. Yeah, um, definitely. I've made it from from people that I've talked to with Sekiro. Um, I've made it further into Sekiro than where like a lot of people drop off, uh, which I think there's something about just being able to do stealth and stealthy attacks and having a grappling hook that is mm-hmm. just slightly more in my wheelhouse. Um, and, um, yeah, cause I, I never made it past the Taurus demon, um, in the first Dark Souls and I have about 10 hours in that game. Um, and I guess about eight hours were going across a couple of bridges, (laughs) up a little tower to a Taurus demon and then dying. Um, and, (laughs) and I just kept building up souls until I you know, died on the way to collecting them. And I had a bunch. I don't remember how many I had, but it was like many, many levels worth of souls. Like it was, it was a lot. Uh, Back when I used to remember the number, I would tell people and that was like, I don't know. They talked about losing that many souls like way later in the game, just because literally I had farmed that first area for probably Literally probably like five or six hours just trying to get up to that. And I, I could never figure out how to, to beat the thing. Um, and uh, then when I lost them all, I was like, well, good job, Dark Souls. You you beat me. I'm done. <laughs> and I never, never looked back. Never, <laughs> never tried again. So one of the interesting things that Dark Souls 2 is different in is that if you kill an enemy like 15 times or so, it disappears from the world. So, I I would have cleared out those bridges a long time ago. (laughs) Right? And I think that that was why I could stick with it because I always felt like I was making progress. Like, it's like, oh, okay, I died and I lost my souls, but I got that guy one more down. And when I first started playing, because I wasn't good at that point, I would clear 
everybody out before I really even attempted the boss. I'd be like, okay, I'm going to clear everybody out. <laughs> sure. Um, yeah. I and could, so that really yeah. made a big difference. There was also in the original, I think they patched this in the scholar version, but in the original, there was a ring that you could repair for 3000 souls. And it would um, mean that you kept your souls whenever you died. Oh. Um, and so you could just keep repairing it and keep using it and never lose your souls. So it was awesome. <laughs> that also, yeah, that also sounds absolutely fantastic. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's become very frustrating for me. Like as much as I like admire the dark souls, um, I guess, you know, franchise, you know, from soft or from, from soft, um, but then also just the the genre and how it's inspired uh, a lot of other games. I, I admire it from a distance. At the same time, I can't stand it when I see a new, like, a, you know, like a 2D pixel art game. that's like, oh, this looks really cool. Click on it on Steam. It's like Souls-like. Is, and I'm like, why, why does everything that I think looks cool have to be this? That or a roguelike. And I'm just like, there are other game types, guys. Can we not, please? But, but that's my own... That's that's my own personal cross to bear is, you know, dealing with all the roguelikes and souls likes in the world. <laughs> well, and I'll be honest, like I don't really play souls like because they're not the souls games and, and right. that's what I want, you know. Sure. Um so I don't really play those ki- kinds of games. Um so I completely understand your frustration. <laughs> well, one of the things one of the things that I, I really liked, um, just as far as world building, uh, with the first one and it's I assume it's this way in, in all of them, and it's this way in, in Sekiro, is, you know, the whole idea of, like, dying and, and resurrecting at a bonfire or an idol or whatever the case may be, it's it's not just a game mechanic. It's part of the lore, and it's mm-hmm. part of the plot. Yes. Um, and I really appreciate that. That's one of the reasons I like the little ability that you had in, in Ori in the Blind Forest, is, like, it wasn't just... You know, when you beat the game, it's not just the theoretical, uh, all of your, you know, successful attempts linked together. All of your failures are accounted for as well. Uh, it's one of the things I liked about Super Meat Boy, uh, where when you beat a level, you just see like all 900 of your Super Meat Boys flying across the screen and dying, and then one finally makes it to the end. Um, if you've never played Super Meat Boy, you absolutely should. Um, <laughs> Completely different kind of game, uh, yes. as is Ori in the Blind Forest. But, um, but I, I like it when when you can take mechanics like that and and root it in the the world itself. And one of the things that I was like, I was weirdly just like super disappointed in was the Star Wars game last year, where it has that faux kind of Souls likeness to it, where when you die, you lose uh, experience, at least on your current. Um, progression bar and but then like when you when you meditate which is their bonfire all of the enemies respawn but you're just you're on a planet with stormtroopers there's no reason for them to respawn and when you die like there's nothing you're not on a super force powered planet that's resurrecting you it's it's still just a mechanic and the mechanic exists outside of the lore of the game Mm -hmm. but then it's behaving like it, like it's just I don't know I, yeah, yeah. No, nobody, nobody has done it like from software. Like that's I don't know. It's 
Yeah, it's really interesting to me. One of the reasons I love the Souls games so much, um, they're really about resilience and like how much it's like the game knows how hard it is and mm-hmm. you know, it's it's trying to teach you that being resilient will get you to the end. Um so there's a metaphor in the game of going hollow where you basically lose your mind and you become come just violent and and you attack everybody on site. Um, but the implication is that when a player quits the game, they've gone hollow, you know, right. that they, they have, um, have given up. And one of the other, uh, driving things that prevents you from being hollow is a sense of purpose. So in the first game, whenever the NPCs lost their sense of purpose, they would go hollow. Hmm. Um, so I really love how they take what are normal video game mechanics and turn it into something that has meaning or that's a metaphor for life. Um, I think they're better at that than pretty much any other game developer I've ever played the game from. Um, cause that a lot of their stuff does track to real life and it does give, um, some meaning, more meaning to playing the game. Sure. Well, um, any other uh, thoughts about the game? I think that most people would agree that multiplayer was Dark Souls 2's strength. Um, A lot of people think it had the best PvP. Um, I also think it had the best co-op. There was always activity. Um, And one of the big changes in Dark Souls 2 was you could be invaded at any time, not just when you were human. So you couldn't really avoid it. So going back to the thing I said about Dark Souls 2 making you get good, um, in the first game, I just avoided PvP by not being human. But in Dark Souls 2, I couldn't do that. So I was forced to learn how to deal with it. Um, And, you know, so I I wasn't given a choice about it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I didn't really PvP much, uh, but I did a lot of multiplayer um, and it was really nice. You would go into somebody's world, you'd help them out, you'd get a little reward. Um, you would spawn back at your bonfire with full health and full spells and you could just do it again. Um, it was very, very, very active. Uh, they still do multiplayer events. Um, Return to Drang Laic is the, the known one where everybody comes back for a couple weeks um, on the day that it was released, on the anniversary of the day it was released, and it's very well populated again. Um, that is the best time to play if you've never played it. <laughs> okay. Interesting. So I, I know in the first game you could be invaded, and obviously that means you could invade other people, uh, but I, I, and I know you can also leave messages and stuff like that. Yes. Uh, so was the first one more just antagonistic, or was the first one also cooperative you could do co-op but um in my my experience it was not as active um because to do co-op you had to take the risk that you were going to get invaded um so one reason that i didn't really co-op was you had to go human which meant you could be invaded and because less people were human you were almost certainly to be certain to be invaded whenever you tried to do co-op um so it's not it wasn't as active as dark souls 2 was um it still existed people definitely did it there are certain hot spots um ons the gargoyles um but yeah it wasn't 
it wasn't as active um, as as Dark Souls Two. Gotcha. Is is there any multiplayer outside of uh, in? So when you invade somebody's game, is that like is that the same term for helping them or attacking them? No. Or, um, okay. Invading is inherently antagonistic. Okay. So you, when you are an invader, the enemies will not attack you, um, and your goal is to kill the host, the person you invaded, um, gotcha. and that's the only way you get a reward. Um, when you co-op, the enemies will attack you, um, and you can help people fight bosses. You can't attack your your um, host. Um, so there's no friendly fire. Mm. Um, okay. So it's, and again, you only get your reward if the host succeeds. So if you, uh, if you die or if they die, you don't get the PVP or not the PVP, the, the um, cooperative reward. Okay. You Is there, get... oh, I'm sorry. sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say you still get to keep all your souls and, and that sort of thing. But, um, but yeah, you don't get the, the other reward. Okay. Is there any other form of multiplayer besides those two kinds of modes? Or um, They both had arenas. Um, I didn't really play in their arenas much, um, but they do exist. So people that really liked PvP um, would do their arenas. Uh, and, you know, and when they're, they're busy, it was, you know, one after another fight, and mm. you could just PvP over and over and over and over again. <laughs> Gotcha. Um, yeah. Is that with your same character? Do you actually, if you do the arena, do you, do you get to take that back to your main campaign? Yeah, it's the same character. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. And they actually even had, um, in Dark Souls 2, this is the only game that did this. Dark Souls 2 did a lot of really unique small things. Um, one of the small unique things they did, if you beat the game without sitting at a bonfire, you would get a ring that would make your weapon in, I can't remember, I think your left hand, or no, your right hand invisible. And if you beat the game without dying, you would get one, a ring that would make your weapon in your left hand invisible. So people that liked a PvP would do that, so that way the other person couldn't see what weapon they were attacking with. Gotcha. I was trying when you were saying that. I was like, "How is that going to be useful in any way?" But okay, now that makes. If you're fighting a real person that can see your hands, that okay. Yes. <laughs> my, my brain completely went away from multiplayer, and I was just like, "This is that is the weirdest ring to ever equip." Yeah, yeah. Um, it's such a cool thing, though. I actually did do the no bonfire one. I didn't do the no death. Um, I'm not quite that good, but I did do the no bonfire one. It's a really interesting way to play the game. That sounds terrifying. <laughs> anyway, cool. Uh, any other uh, any other aspects about the multiplayer that you just you know in general appreciate? Um, you know, you mentioned the soapstone messages. Mm -hmm. um, I really did enjoy the soapstone messages because you know the players communicate a lot of different things sometimes you know people were trolling sometimes they were helpful a lot of times they were just jokes um especially when there was any female nbcs around <laughs> but it started a lot of like cool memes and and there was a lot of cool like 
camaraderie that you could have without actually like talking to anybody. Um, most of the multiplayer and the Souls games are micless. Um, most people do not use a mic. Um, so using gestures and using the messages, people really could communicate with each other without actually having to listen to somebody call you a racial slur or, you know, something like that. <laughs> nice. Yeah. That's that's always fun when people are, you know, terrible. That's <laughs> it is. It is. And, you know, and as a female, I, I am terrified to go on mic. So sure. I really appreciate that I can play multiplayer and not have to be worried about it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, on that note, I, f- I feel like that is a, a good place to, to stop. Any Any final thoughts about the game? Um, yeah, I, what I would literally like to tell people is if you've played Dark Souls 1 or Dark Souls 3 and you're on the fence about playing Dark Souls 2, I would really urge you to give it a shot. It does do some different things that the other games don't do. It's a different experience, but I think the key is really to go into it with no expectations, not expecting it to be like Dark Souls 1 or Dark Souls 3. Um, it is its own game and it plays a bit differently. Um, and so I think that it's definitely worth your time to try it, um, to take it or to experience the, the story and the lore of it and the DLCs, which are fantastic. And the multiplayer, if you play during one of the multiplayer events, especially, um, it, I think it gets a bad rap that it doesn't really deserve. It is a really, really good game. Awesome. Well, Lauren, thank you for sitting down and chatting with me about... Uh, Dark Souls 2. We'll be back in just a little bit to talk about more of our favorite games from the past decade. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Dark Cast. I'm Jonathan Miley. Joining me today is Garland Pan. Garland, how are you doing? I'm doing great. How about you? I'm doing I'm doing good considering the craziness that is happening in the world. Um but uh I it, I feel like it's going to be really weird if people want to look back on uh this podcast in the future, you know, to see what Dark Station thought about video games from 2020 or 2020 2010 to 2019 and there's going to be a whole run of episodes in that where we talk a lot about the coronavirus and pandemics and self-quarantining and it's <laughs> there's crazy stuff that's happening in the world and uh that we i guess we're kind of i don't know we're recording history we're making we're not really making history history is being made around us um but um but in all of that with all the crazy stuff that's going on uh it is really nice to be able to maybe distract yourself uh from that and uh, for anybody that is fortunate enough to be able to distract themselves from it. Uh, one of the great things that we can distract ourselves with is video games or just talking about video games. Uh, and I feel like in some ways now more than ever, uh, having conversations like this where we celebrate things that we enjoy are super important. And uh, the game that we're talking about today is Hotline Miami, uh, which is maybe not the most you know like uplifting game but (laughs) (laughs) but definitely distracting with uh you know the flashy lights and the colorfulness and just the you know the dying over and over and over and over and over again 
Um, I haven't really played it. I think I maybe played like a level of it a long time ago, and I was just like, that. Eh, I don't know if that's my jam. Um, but uh, it's God. I remember uh, when it came out. It it felt like just everybody everywhere was just amazed and and in awe of this game. So tell me a little bit about why this is is one of your favorite games from the past ten years. Well, Hotline Miami is like hyper stylized and it was really a landmark title in terms of like the indie scene Mm. it's this like top-down action game in the same in a similar vein to like the old uh gta games Mm -hmm. but it's like in close quarters so you're not out in the city you're in like buildings a very tight level design and you're incentivized to run around like a maniac and kill everything <laughs> as fast as possible. Okay. Yeah, you essentially die in one hit and you can kill your enemies in one hit most of the time. Yeah. Um and it also takes back like the instant retry mechanic from something like Super Meat Boy. Mhm. But in this case like Things are so much more frantic than like something like Super Meat Boy. Like you're you're on the run, always trying to kill as many enemies as you can in like crazy brutal ways. Mm-hmm. And there's this uh, risk versus reward system that's tied into um, the game, in which you have to um, kill an enemy and then continue chaining your combos in order to maintain your combo meter and the higher your combo meter is the higher your score ends up and you know you want the highest score and it it's like twisted in a way because it's like incentivizing you to become like this crazy rampant murderer and it's basically throwing you into the mindset of the character itself Mm. interesting yeah it's weird that like in a lot of ways, that's that's the way most video games are, especially anything that contains a gun and has you shooting. Um, like, you are a crazy, rampant murderer. Uh, but most games, you know, you're a smiling, crazy, rampant murderer. Um, you know, you don't have to look any further than, like, Nathan Drake, who ha- probably has a body count of, like, 5,000 people by the end of his games. <laughs> and um, But, I don't know, people have pointed it out with Uncharted, obviously. Uh, there's the whole Ludo narrative dissonance argument. Uh, but it's really interesting when a game kind of takes that idea and sort of embraces it and like acknowledges that uh, this is crazy and messed up and you're killing a whole bunch of people. Um, personally, I, I like uh, instant retries on things. And that's that's been one of the things that I like, I've kind of wanted to to try harder with this game. Because like with Super Meat Boy, like you mentioned... Like, the thing I liked about that is, I I mean, I feel like I'm just throwing myself at a brick wall. Uh, but eventually, if I do it enough times, I'll, I'll break through the brick wall. Um, and that's the way that I usually like, you know, hard difficulty. Like, I, I like to be able to save something right before I try it and just try over and over and over again. If I have to wait, like, five minutes and walk to the place where I know I'm going to die, that's where I start to get super frustrated with things. Oh, like it gets kind of tedious in the way, like if you played through a level of Dark Souls and yes. had to run through everything and yes. reach the exactly. final boss and 
kills you, you have to run all the way back. Yep, and then it's like, oh, now I have to, not only do I have to do this, like, whole part of this level again, I have to fight all these people again, and, you know, sometimes you do it well, and you get there, and you've got full health, and other times you're, like, already almost dead by the time you get to the boss, and you're just like, okay, just kill me now, because, like, I, I need to start this try over again. Um, so the instant retry is something that I've always really appreciated, but I think the, the franticness is what has kind of scared me away, because even the idea of, like, one shot, one kill... I also like, like I, especially shooters. I like it. I like the idea of like the glass cannon, where you know you die easily, but then so do most of your your enemies. Um, but I, I think it's just it's just the craziness of the game that completely scares me away from it. Are you talking about the? I'm talking about uh, hotline psychedelic Mania. styles, the, or and, and just the chaoticness of the the combat. It looks like there's not a whole lot of like. You can't be calm. You can't, like, sit and wait. It's all just balls to the walls. You're running through doors, smacking with pe- smacking people with doors, and, like, uh, you just have to be on point for, like, a whole level. Um, at least that's, that's what it appears like from, from the outside. Well, I mean, it's possible to play in a more slow, methodical way. It's mm-hmm. just that the systems in place don't really incentivize it that much. Sure, sure, sure. Is there a, a combo meter and stuff like that, or is... It's a combo kill system in okay. which, like, you'll kill one enemy and then you need... There's, like, a a timer set in which, like, after a certain amount of time, if you don't kill another enemy, you'll just lose your combo. You'll get your points, but... Sure. You'll, yeah, and it's... it's like a high level player will have to like always be going forward, moving to the next enemy and memorizing or getting a general gist of like enemy placement of each level. Yeah. Yeah, and I I think that's what's like I don't know. Uh maybe playing it over and over again would be useful useful. Uh but for me the I don't know. I, I like generally to, to take my time on things like that. And uh, that's just probably why stealth games uh, appeal to me a lot because I, I like to get the lay of the land and skulk around and, and generally only attack when like I'm confident in, in what I'm about to do. Um, so I, I know there's some some kind of crazy psychedelic stuff with the story too. I mean, where the game's been out for like eight years, so if people don't want spoilers, then they should probably, you know, not listen to retrospectives about games that came out almost ten years ago. Um, so if you want to talk about the story, any uh, is that is that one of the parts that you really enjoyed, or is it more the mechanical nature of it? Uh, I mean, I enjoyed like the story as well. It's just now that like the sequel came out, it's kind of like it's kind of been harmed in some ways. Hmm. Like, so harmed by the sequel, or yes, definitely okay. harmed by the sequel. And like some people that. argue with me on that, but <laughs> uh. I remember reading about like some trepidation and some some issues that people had with the second one, uh, not necessarily mechanically, but. Uh, with the story, but I don't know what's going on with that. As far as I know, nobody has uh, is signed up to talk about Hotline Miami 2, so if you want to talk a little bit th- about that game as well, uh, you're welcome to kind of 
talk about the, the issues there. Yeah, I could give you the general gist and the... sure. Okay, so basically, where like Hotline Miami stars like some nameless dude who wears masks whenever he enters buildings to kill people because of phone calls. You in uh, Hotline Miami Two, wrong number. You play like a whole set of characters, like a whole bunch of random characters in a Quentin Tarantino sort of way. And you you don't get that same sense of like suicidal murder frenzy. It's mm. the tone is gone and the story is more consistent because in the original Hotline Miami, you really don't know what's happening. Things happen and you can't really explain what's going on because you'll pick up a phone call, there'll be like some coded message, and then your character will go off and head to like a building and murder a bunch of people for some random reason, an unexplained reason. And then you'll head back home in like a very melancholic way and after you killed everyone you leave and you see all the dead bodies and it's like the the low after a a drug high. Okay. And then uh there'll always be some one specific character who's always really friendly to the main character. And it's not explained and it's all weird and as you progress through the story, things escalate uh, in which like the psychedelic factors of the story get like worse and worse. Like the... Like after each level, it's a little more like calmer and safer. But like as you go further, these like violent factors that you encounter during like the regular gameplay start seeping into the reality um past past the mask scenes or the murder scenes basically mm. okay yeah and then like even after the end of the game you play like or after the after the levels in which you play as the masked masked uh, main character you play as like a motorcycle character who actually has like dialogue and he's trying to figure out what's going on and like in the end like you don't really get any real answers it's like open to interpretation in a way that i like the most like it borders the fine line between like a very interesting story structure with a lot of interesting elements of like uh intrigue and uh action but like you you don't have any like solid evidence to point at any particular line of story. Mm. But in uh, Wrong Number, everything gets lined out. There's no... It's like the magic is basically lost because there's just so much more going on. The detail is much higher. Like, in terms of the story, like, there's clear character dialogue. There's... There's, like, a progression in place and then anything weird that happens like you can easily just say oh it was drugs or something yeah <laughs> it's gotcha. kind of boring in that regard and then also one of the most exciting things about hotline miami one for me mm -hmm. are the um the melee weapons in close quarters combat like these uh tight levels in which you have to memorize locations or get a sense of locations and like 
attack enemies with the weapons because in general guns are like not as much incentivized they're more for like if you need to reach an enemy from a distance but they also come with the cost of like giving away your position and they don't give as many points as you would if you uh went face to face and like kick someone's head in basically okay but in uh wrong number the levels are vast and um there's a greater emphasis on shooting gameplay which doesn't really work as well because the uh the top down camera is actually pretty zoomed in so it's not very easy to see what's ahead of you, you can, enemies can come out of nowhere and shoot you and then that's kind of frustrating sure yeah, I mean, in general, like, sure, Hotline Miami, wrong number, like, mixed up the gameplay with regards to um, various character types. They had, like, some cool features added in, but it's not as tight, and they went over... Like, they were overly ambitious with the story and the gameplay in such a way that kind of didn't flow with the original. I mean... There's like some meta narrative in in Hotline Miami too about like the fans. I mean, yeah, it, it's a little a little weird. But yeah, I'm not too fond of Hotline Miami too. There are gotcha. certainly some fans though. Uh, as as far as the um, the explanation in the story and kind of the magic being gone, is it is it just the fact that you feel like they explain too much? and it's, like, too grounded? Or are there things that are revealed about the story that you don't like? Does that, does that make sense? Mm, I think it's a mix of both. I, okay. I, the explanation they give you is not an explanation I particularly liked. Okay. okay. I mean, I think it was tied to how the main character was... Um a soldier from Vietnam or something like, you know, he had like PTSD and I guess you can explain it that way. And maybe you can explain it with drugs too. There's some drugs in the mix and there's some like uh conspiracy theories and with the phone calls and whatnot. But, <laughs> uh, I, it just seemed like it didn't fit too well with the, broader picture like it gave away the game basically and sure sure that makes sense i mean like for example like you play killer seven or something or silent hill 2 and these are games that are like they have like on the surface level their story is very intriguing and engaging but on like a deeper level you can actually interpret a lot of things you can think about what it means in terms of the theming and everything Right, and it actually, it's it's that perfect middle ground that I was talking about, where like there are a lot of things that you can interpret, but it's still very engaging, even though it doesn't give you everything that you really could have, I guess, in terms mm -hmm. of writing. Okay, that makes that makes sense. Um, is do you feel like you can still go back and enjoy the the first Hotline Miami uh, after? You know, kind of your experience with the second one? Um, for the most part, I can. I mean, in terms of the gameplay, it's still, like, exactly the way it was meant to be with, like, the fast-paced gameplay, 
close quarters, um, combat, and like you said, the flashing lights. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like a seizure warning thing, though. <laughs> <laughs> um, in terms of the presentation, I mean, it's still as amazing as ever. I mean, the music is very stylish and I mean there's just a lot of synth 80 styles music that's really easy to get into and it somehow ties very well with the uh the drug high you kind of get when you're playing the uh the gameplay segments and then when you beat each level there's always like a quiet low so in a way that sets you up to think about all the killing you've done. Mm. And then there's like a melancholic um, track that plays at the end when you drive off into the sunset. It's very, it's like an emotional roller coaster in that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, the pixel art is like pretty like basic, but it's also a little like jarring, a little weird. And the neon colors tie well with it because you know I think I think the story takes place in the eighties. Okay, it, I don't know the the color aesthetic of it looks like it it would. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, just that, just straight out. Uh, yeah, apparently it, t- it plays, takes place at the end of the eighties, nineteen eighty nine. Um, okay. So, um, have the have the developers um, have they announced any? Anything new? Because, I mean, Hotline Miami 2 feels like that came out a long time ago. Um, and it looks like it was 2015, so, wow, I didn't even realize those were kind of released so close together. It's been five years uh, since they've released anything. Uh, would you want a Hotline Miami 3? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's right. You know, sometimes some games are like, you know, they're they're one and done. It's like, you know, this is great. You don't need to, like, evolve this anymore. Um, I don't need to see what happens in the, you know, the story. I feel like these mechanics are, are what they need to be. Do something, do something else. Um, yeah. So. There are some games that, like, the first game did it right the first time, and then the sequel doesn't, like, really live up to the name, right? Yeah. Absolutely. Um, the latest thing I remember from uh, Denaton Games um, is their collaboration with uh, Suda51 okay. or uh, Travis Strikes Again. Gotcha. Yeah. Interesting. It was um, pretty interesting in which, like, <laughs> Travis Touchdown enjoys or really likes Hotline Miami 1 and 2. <laughs> mm-hmm. That is interesting. Well, um, any any other thoughts about the about Hotline Miami? Um, I really like the psychedelic uh, cutscenes in which, like the the masks, kind of like talk to the main character and ask ask him about like if he enjoys inflicting violence on people, basically, mm. <laughs> and like. Mm. It's very dark and brooding and mysterious in that way. And like I said, it, it does well to contrast with like the 
bright neon colors of like murdering everybody in a in a building. Um, in terms of like the big picture, though, like I really do feel like Hotline Miami set like a new like stylistic standard for indie games. Sure. Uh, yeah, I think yeah, that's I, I, about it. Okay. Awesome. Yeah, I feel like we we could probably have a a different discussion of maybe like, um, two thousand eight to two thousand twelve of just like the evolution of indie games of just like all the benchmarks that we had through those four or five years, because um, <laughs> I don't know, it's and indie games are continuing to evolve and continuing to be super impressive with what you know people are doing on a, on a smaller budget with fewer teams or fewer people on a team. Um, but like, I feel like in the, just the, the first couple of years, um, I guess, you know, of like the, the 360 into you know, PS3 era into the early part of the, uh, Xbox one and, and PS4 era that like, you just, we saw a lot of like benchmarks made, that I think we we still hold a lot of games too. Uh, there was a lot of really cool stuff that came out then, and mm-hmm. uh, this is that's Hotline Miami is one of them. So yeah, we should talk about Braid. <laughs> <laughs> we absolutely should, but uh, not today because we're talking about uh, games from the past ten years, and unfortunately, that barely uh, squeaks out uh, by a year or two. So yeah. Uh, <laughs> But I'm sure we will at some point. Uh, well, Garland, thank you so much for sitting down and chatting with me about Hotline Miami. We will be back to talk about more games uh, in just a moment. Well, that does it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. You can find out more information about the games we discussed below if you're listening on YouTube or in the show notes for this episode on DarkStation.com. There you can also find the DarkCast Interviews podcast as well as other video game reviews, previews, and features. Be sure to subscribe to the show on iTunes, follow us on Twitter at DarkStation underscore com, find us on Facebook, check us out on YouTube, and email us at podcast at DarkStation.com. For Brian Tyler, Lauren Clark, and Garland Pan, I'm Jonathan Miley. Thanks again, and until next time, be safe out there.